It's good to see so many of you here. Thank you very much for coming. I'd just like to say a few words before passing on to Professor Evans to introduce our speaker tonight. And basically what I want to say relates to the new structure of the seminar and some of the new things we're trying to do with the seminar. So on the one hand, as you probably noticed, is we're continuing and trying to strengthen the collaboration between us and the Faculty of Modern Languages. And I think it does work quite nicely. That this term we have the Russian seminar as a co-organizer of one of the sessions. And I think it's quite useful for us to look at other faculties within the university who which sort of look at similar things or have similar interests. Secondly, we try to expand geographically. You may have noticed from the programme that actually we are including Germany, Russia and Turkey as part of the whole discussion about ESET to Europe. And I think this is a venue we'd like to pursue in the, in, in the future. Now, this geographical and, if you want, this geographic broad perspective, I think it's important if one has to look at the topic of this seminar for this term, which is special paths on the Vega in European perspective, because you do need, indeed, to have this wide perspective. Now, the way we wanted to do it, Professor Andres Orion and myself, was not to look at one country specifically, as traditionally the case, but to pick up concepts, if you want, or historical categories, and through the prism of these categories, to understand the idea of a special path. So what we did, we looked at the idea of a state, and our first speaker is talking about the Holy Roman Empire, or the German, early German, early modern German history, to look, look at the idea of generation, then to have that as a way of understanding intellectuals in East Central Europe, then to look at the idea of culture, then look at early modern Russian context, and then to look at the idea of ideology, and look at what happens in Kemalist Turkey. So these were the four concepts we tried to put together to understand the whole idea of the special paths in European perspective. So we'll see at the end of the term whether we were successful or not, but hopefully it will prove to be an interesting research venue to pursue. Now, finally, I should like to thank some of, some of you here who put together the program, and I think it's important to remember that. The Professor Andres Zorin, Jan Hennings, Jan Ferran, and David Cunningham. Without further ado, the floor is That's a way to get an audience, isn't it? Get some people preparing <coughs> occasions. Just a word about our speaker, Barbara stolberg Rielinger, who is one of the best known, and I think testimony to that uh, in the audience this evening, one of the best known historians of early modern Germany, now at Münster, began at Cologne, and has been in contact with us in various ways, and a, a contact which is developing, there's a family connection too, I understand, that uh, son is actually studying here at the moment, um, and uh, Lindell Roper has a programme, or at least you together have a programme, which is... A development, one of the one of the developments we particularly value, which Jan Hennings is also involved with, with with Minster. Well, Barbara is well known for a number of works. Perhaps the the one with the catchiest title, shall we say, mm -hmm. is Disguises Arctic Kleider, the old clothes of the emperor, which is the Fossilsgeschichte unserer Wortsprache im Alten Reich. So it's all about the uh, symbolism of meetings and things like that. Perhaps uh, we were wondering about the symbolism of this particular organisation. Uh, of the tables in this room, but uh, without more ado, I'll invite her to speak today on institutional hypocrisy, the imperial diet in the 18th century, question mark, a German Zondervig. Thank you very much. 
First of all, I want to express my gratitude for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here, and it's a real pleasure for me because I've got the impression that or it's a very great feeling to be in this unique place, Oxford, where you get the impression that traditional scholarship is something still commonly appreciated, which an impression which you normally not do not have in other places. So the question of whether the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation was a completely unique kind of political entity, not comparable to the other monarchies of the early modern period, is highly contested among German historians today. Many prefer to emphasize the commonalities rather than the differences. Germans no longer want to constantly be an unpleasant exception within European history. But as always, the answer to this question naturally depends on the perspective from which it is posed. Just about anything can be compared, even apples and oranges, by the way, and what emerges is a function of the parameters of comparison. The early modern monarchies, of course, had many things in common, things that differentiated all of them from our modern democratic states. But of greater interest to historians are, in fact, the differences since the historian's goal is, after all, an adequate understanding of the unique structure of each specific phenomenon. Seen in this way, the history of Europe consists of nothing but separate parts. Be that as it may, in one respect, the history of the Holy Roman Empire definitely does represent a special path. Unlike England, France, and most of the other European monarchies, if we disregard Poland for a moment, in 1806, the empire simply ceased to exist as an institutional reality. In this sense, it is quite clearly took a separate path, one that turned out to be a dead end from which it ultimately could not find its way out. The question is, how did this even become possible? What kind of an entity was this that could simply be abolished by the emperor with a single stroke of a pen. If we examine how contemporaries themselves answered the question of what the empire really was, we once again garner the impression that this is a special case. Already in the 17th and 18th centuries, scholars refer to the empire as a political enigma, a chimera, a monstrosity. The famous saying by the great legal scholar and historian Samuel Pufendorf that the empire was monstrosimile, like a monstrosity, was by no means unique. In the language usage of the time, monstrum meant something astonishing, typically a freak of nature, such as a child with two heads or an her a hermaphrodite or something neither fish nor fowl. The empire, too, was such a chimera, something that did not allow for classification, that stood in the way of the need for a clear conception. Neither monarchy nor aristocracy, neither state nor confederation of states, rather completely idiosyncratic mixture of all these usual political categories. This was phrased most pointedly by Georg, Friedrich, uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel in 1802, namely in the form of a paradox, for him, the empire was both a state and no state. The consequence of this idiosyncratic situation is that in historical accounts, 
there were and still are two competing master narratives of the empire's late phase. I'm, of course, simplifying uh, greatly in this uh, respect. Earlier German historians, oriented along the lines of the Prussian-dominated national power state, clearly denied the empire being a state, but just as clearly attributed this to the individual imperial territories. An influential direction within the recent research is conversely just as certain that the empire was in fact a state, not a power state, however, but rather a peaceful Rechtsstaat composed of parts merging into a whole in a harmonious and complementary manner. The empire is seen as a model of federal, federal republican identity, as the as it were, guiltless tradition of a better Germany, of which one can be proud of. These two opposite interpretations by historians have one thing in common, namely the striving for unambiguousness. But we should take the words of contemporaries more seriously. The empire was a paradox, an enigma, at once a state and a non-state. Both were true. The reality itself was ambiguous. In other words, we can only understand this political entity if we take the chimerical character of, of this institutional structure seriously and do not attempt to dispel it in the futile striving for unambiguousness. Ultimately, a political social entity does not need to satisfy the demands of formal logical rigor. It is not, after all, a philosophical construction, as some historians would like it to be, but rather a tangle of collective practices to which various meanings are attributed. The method I would like to use to approach the empire is based on the premise that the social reality is always produced anew by the people who participate in it, by means of their actions, not, however, unconditionally and uh, not completely varyingly from individual to individual, but rather on the basis of conventional, conventional, collectively shared rules of the game and symbolic codes that the individuals interpret in which they have been raised and which thus appear to them as objective, inaccessible, and, as it were, naturally given. These rules give rise to stable, mutual expectations which orient the actions of the participants, even of those who infringe against them. Every social-political order appears to be something objective because it is embodied in numerous material symbols and traditional rituals. But what is crucial is that all the participants must by no means endow these symbolic forms with precisely the same meanings. It is much more the case that symbolic communication is always highly ambiguous and vague to a much greater extent than conceptual abstract verbal communication. And thus it can easily be used to conceal disagreements and contradictions and hide them behind a facade of consensus in the form of symbolic acts of staging. If we bear this in mind, I believe it is possible to better understand the development and functioning or the non-functioning of the empire during its last late phase. 
So my thesis is thus, after the peace of Westphalia, the empire had an ambiguous structure that compelled people to engage in continual structurally determined, thus institutionalized hypocrisy. It is important to emphasize here that the phrase institutional hypocrisy absolutely does not refer to, his, to hypocrisy in a moral sense. In this context, I would like to recall Nietzsche's essay on truth and lie in a non-moral sense, uh, where the art of dissimulation appears as a downright natural everyday phenomenon, and where Nietzsche writes, deception, flattering, lying, deluding, talking behind the back, putting up a false front, living in borrowed splendor, wearing a mask, hiding behind convention, playing a role for others and for, and for oneself, is so much the rule and the law among men that there is almost nothing which is less comprehensible than how an honest and pure drive for truth have arisen among them. End of quote. Even if, if it might sound a bit provocative, I would like to use the concept of hypocrisy to specifically refer to something structurally necessary, something ubiquitous within social activities, and not some individual moral transgression. I'm speaking thus not simply of hypocrisy, but of institutional hypocrisy. In doing so, I'm making use of a term from the field of organization theory. Institutional hypocrisy, namely, means that there is a need to dissimulate, being, in, a need to dissim being inherent in the structure of an institution, in essence compelled by it, and thus tacitly and collectively shared by all participants. This kind of structural hypocrisy comes about when institutions place contradictory demands upon its members, generating what one might, what one might call a permanent double-bind situation, a structural conflict of values or goals. Two different modes of behavior thus operate permanently alongside one another on two different levels, linked together only loosely. In this way, the norms of the institution can be upheld even if the members constantly violate them or are even forced to violate them. This interpretative model seems to me well-suited to better understand certain difficult-to-explain phenomena in the late period of the empire. But before applying it, however, I would like to offer a few general remarks about the empire. Three characteristic traits seem to me uh, to be of particular importance. First, the empire was a, was a very heterogeneous association of very different members, starting with great and powerful prince-electors who possessed not only several territories within the empire, but also um, their own kingdoms outside of the empire, through the secular and ecclesiastical princes of greatly varying importance, the autonomous cities, and finally the small and smallest members, such as prelates, counts, and kings, uh, knights, <laughs> excuse me, knights, who would not have been able to lead an independent political existence outside of the empire. As a result, these members were interested in the imperial association as a whole to very different degrees. Secondly, for precisely this reason, the empire as a whole was integrated relatively weakly. This meant that there was no central coercive authority. 
In view of the differences between the members just mentioned, it was difficult to draw up resolutions that were collectively binding for the whole and to enforce them, especially against the will of individual powerful estates. When the members did not amicably reach agreement, then nothing at all happened. Third, it should be emphasized that the empire was a complicated traditional entity in which old and new institutions, norms, and procedures overlapped and did so at times in an extremely contradictory manner. The old was never simply abolished and replaced by the new. Rather, old layers such as feudal law and new layers such as, for example, uh, the imperial circles coexisted and formed no systematically closed unity. The Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 failed to dissolve the traditional tension within the imperial association which, with, its, with its very heterogeneous composition, but also preserved, if not in fact intensified, the tension between the particular importance of the great princes, including the emperor, on the one hand, and the cooperative unity of the whole under the authority of the very same emperor, on the other hand. The open constitutional question of whether the empire was a loose federation of semi-sovereign potentates or a feudal law hierarchy with emperor and electors as its head was never decided. Rather, two competing interpretations of the empire coexisted alongside one another uninterruptedly, two maxims of behavior and also two ceremonial grammars, as it were, which crisscrossed in many places and continuously gave rise to new causes for conflict. For the contemporaries, this meant that unambiguous behavior was not possible. The tensions in the empire as a whole intensified in the course of the, the 18th century due to the fact that the, the just-mentioned asymmetry between the few large states and the many less powerful ones continuously increased. As is well known, two large powers confronted each other within the empire, Austria and Brandenburg, Prussia, who had integrated most of the smaller estates into their respective client networks and who successfully instrumentalized the confessional division for their political purposes but whose main territorial areas lay outside of the empire. Ultimately, the great powers had less and less interest in preserving the whole, and the smaller powers had less and less means of doing so. What happened unexpectedly and suddenly in the end, to the shock of contemporaries, was the renunciation of institutionalized hypocrisy, which, even if it had not been able to conceal the powerlessness of the empire as a whole, had at least been able to prevent its being openly uttered. Now, in the main part of my talk, I would like to try to make that uh, somewhat clearer and to do so on the basis of one imperial institution, the so-called Perpetual Diet of Regensburg, in which the structural ambiguity can be demonst demonstrated particularly well. In earlier constitutional history, the Reichstag, the Diet, had a dreadful reputation. It was considered merely ridiculous and not worthy of detailed analysis. 
but a few modern historians have turned the tables and celebrate the Diet as a forward-looking, since permanent, institution as an early form of parliament, even more progressive than the English one, as the representation of the German people over and against the imperial sovereign, the emperor. In concepts of modern constitutionalism, the Diet is described as an organ of legislation and control and juxtaposed to the executive, executive branch in the form of the emperor. I see this as an anachronistic distortion. I would like, in contrast, to make a case for once again taking the older interpretation more seriously without, however, sharing uh, its Prussophile nationalistic bias. The perpetual diet was in fact a bizarre phenomenon. The sources attest overpowering to this. Instead, it is a matter of understanding the structural reason why this was the case. The Peace of Westphalia ascribed a central importance to the imperial diet. In all relevant matters, namely, it bound the emperor expressly to the quote, freely reached agreement and consensus of all imperial estates at an imperial diet. However, the very same treaty also ascribed to the individual estates the unhampered rule over their territories, so-called superioritas territorialis. And finally, it preserved across the board all the traditional rights, freedoms, and privileges of all the imperial members, whether immediate or immediate. These, however, were mutually irreconcilable provisions, and it was unclear how to proceed in the case of conflict. At the same time, namely, the Peace of Westphalia also left a whole group of matters unresolved, entrusting them to a later imperial diet. Among these, most importantly, central questions of the procedures of the imperial diet itself and thus ultimately the question of the empire's capacity to act as a whole political body. The last two imperial diets, summoned in 1653 and 1663, were never successful in resolving these issues, for, as mentioned above, no decision could be reached against the will of the great powers. But the program always remained officially on the agenda. This is why the last diet became eternal. The Diet in Regensburg may, may have been useful as an instrument of Habsburg's client politics or as a hub of information exchange. But as measured by its historical tradition and in the eyes of contemporary legal scholars, the Diet was more than an informal forum and a knot in the Habsburg client network. It was a ceremonial event, quote, where the Holy Roman Empire's head and members together were, were seen as and considered one body and where the Summa Majestas was residing. End of quote. It was considered the institution that represented the empire as a whole, that is, which consolidated the empire and the estates into one body politic capable of collective action, a body with one will, in the sense that what was decided there in specific ritual forms claimed to be binding for all members. The learned handbooks continued to write that, 
quote, the movements of the equally wonderful and great body of our German state are predominantly received by the members through the imperial diets. End of quote. In brief, without the diet, the empire would not even have existed as a corpus politicum, as a body politic. So much for the institutional fiction. I would like to briefly describe the praxis in four points, in which I shall discuss first the location of the diet, second the persons, third the ceremonies, and fourth the procedure. In conclusion, I would like to return briefly to the concept of institutional hypocrisy as a specific feature of the empire in its late period. First, the location. It was still the same location as it had been in the 16th century when the emperor had frequently invited the estates into one of the imperial cities, Regensburg being one of them. The consultations always took place in the town hall. In former times, this location had been appropriate to the imperial diet's character as a temporary event. But now the assembly had become a perpetual institution. Uh, now as the assembly had uh, become a perpetual institution, this must have been felt as an anachronism. The town hall on the left had not changed its form, but the commune, now Protestant, built a new modern town hall beside it. On the, on the right, that dwarf the neighboring structure and literally make it look old. Other European assemblies of estates generally met in a royal palace. The town hall was thus, was thus already somewhat of an exception. Originally, however, the symbolic order in the room corresponded to what generally was the case in other European countries, as can be seen in comparison of the opening session um, this is the opening session of the Imperial Diet of 1653, and you, if you compare it to the picture of the opening session of the English Parliament in the House of Lords from the late 16th century, you see that the, the, the style of the, the image and the seating order and so on is very similar. This is how contemporaries in the 18th century represented the interior of the Regensburg Diet, the central Re- und Korrelationssaal, uh, where the ceremonious, opening, uh, ceremonious openings took place, on the right. This is the same room, and it is depicted totally differently uh, in the 17th and in the 18th century, but it is the same room. The comparison shows that the very same room was perceived very differently in the middle of the 17th and of the 18th century. On the later depiction, it is dark, low, grand, and most importantly, it is shown without any persons. I shall return to this uh, later. The image here has lost all the aura of majesty that had characterized the earlier image type on the left. And this is what the three um, assembly rooms for the three separate curiae, curiae uh, or the three colleges of electors, princes, and uh, cities uh, look like, uh, or more, more precisely how they were represented in the 18th century. Uh, also extremely spartan, unadorned, somber, and devoid of persons. When one considers the fact that institutions are embodied above all in buildings, and that architecture was the most impressive means of, of representing authority in the Baroque period, 
then one understands the effect the Regensburg imperial diet must have had upon contemporaries. Whereas at the same time, the emperor, electors, princes, indeed even the smallest imperial prelates, gave expression to their own majesty in their residences with every imaginable splendor, the empire as such possessed absolutely no architecture of power and authority. For this, either money was lacking or the consensus of the estates or both. But the early modern political culture was a culture of presence, and according to its logic, majesty needed to be visible. It needed to manifest itself in the extravagant use of time and money in precious materials and in artistic perfection. And thus one could see in Regensburg what the majesty of the empire looked like. The pathetic, sad, old-fashioned and gloomy location of the imperial diet clearly had to be read as a metaphor. In the 18th century, it was a commonplace in the travel literature to observe that, quote, the decrepitude of the building for the assembly of the estates stands in a strange connection to the duration of the imperial system itself, end of quote. Second point, the persons. Originally, the empire was an association of persons and in order to exist as a permanent institution, occasionally needed to appear in its real presence, to put it in theological terms, by means of the ceremonious personal convening of the estates. Representation by authorized envoys was always viewed only as an exception. Personal presence was the norm. The first imperial diet after the Peace of Westphalia, too, was still celebrated as a great and resplendent court council of the potentates uh, themselves with their retinues. Even in the 18th century, the forms of the older culture of presence were retained, although the envoys had long since completely replaced the electors and princes themselves, of whom not a single one could be glimpsed in person in Regensburg any longer, unless incognito, like a tourist visiting uh, objects of antiquity. The fact that the uh, electors and princes uh, no longer appeared in person at the imperial diet um, is also the reason for the absence of persons uh, on the later images, whereas when they appeared uh, in, in person, they were depicted as persons in the uh, 17th century. But the envoys were supposed to represent their principles in the fullest sense of the word. That is to say, they were supposed to present themselves and be treated as if they were themselves their high principles. According to the rules of the time, however, in order to have a fully representational character, in this sense, the envoys themselves had to have been of high descent, and in order to project the necessary splendor, they also had to have at their disposal significant personal fortune, for there were no, uh, not yet any fixed salaries. This was all the more so for the representative of the emperor, the so-called principal commissar or principal commissioner, who held a kind of surrogate imperial court in Regensburg. It is very significant that over time, both the emperor and even more so the estates increasingly violated these rules. The House of Tone and Taxes, which had been supplying the uh, principal commissar since 1742, 
did not have princely status and until 1785 possessed no princely territory, as was actually required for representing the emperor before other princes. But the estates who complained about the humble origins of the imperial representative themselves acted scarcely differently. To the contrary, since the imperial diet had become permanent, the social rank of their envoys steadily decreased. Regensburg was considered a less reputable delegation goal. No less a figure than Montesquieu noted on his travels in Germany, and I quote, the positions in Regensburg are all occupied by envoys uh, who are valued little by their lords or who have fallen out of favor. They no longer have the trust of the princes and they thus no longer act here um, in their interests, but rather want to be merely left in peace or enrich themselves through benefactions of the Viennese court. End of quote. Imperial patriots notoriously criticized the fact that the imperial estates did not raise enough money for their envoys to the imperial diet. Because of their, quote, because of their humble salaries, the envoys have to live very frugally and withdrawn. They do not spread much light. They live from their meager pay and have to economize, end of quote. In order to reduce costs, the envoy positions were often left unoccupied for long periods and even more principals would not even send their own representatives at all, but rather would commission others to submit their positions and vote. In 1764, for example, 35 envoys gave a total of 161 votes. In brief, the envoys to the imperial diet were low in standing and few in number, poorly remunerated, frequently absent, and moreover politically influenced by third parties. The one determined the other. In this way, both the emperor as well as the imperial princes tacitly declared the low value they placed on the imperial diet as a representational organ of the empire as a whole, and so contributed to the decline of its reputation. At the same time, however, they continued to emphasize the central role of the imperial diet as a manifestation of the will of the empire. Second point, the ceremonial. Conflicts over ceremony at the Regensburg imperial diet were proverbial. I quote, an entire host of disputes over ceremony extended according to the state, uh, extended even to the fringes on the seats of chairs uh, seats or chairs, to knife, fork, and spoon, whether these should be worked or smooth, to the lidded glasses, whether the elector's envoys should drink out of it together with the prince's envoys, and so on. End of quote. But there was an urgent structural logic to these disputes. According to the contemporary rules of diplomacy, namely, the ceremonial treatment of an envoy had a highly symbolic character. The granting of the so-called honores regii, the royal honors, was the clearest and most unambiguous sign that his principal had sovereign status and was recognized as an equal member in the system of international law. And after the Peace of Westphalia, this was the most important political goal for all the imperial estates. Strictly speaking, however, this demand was in conflict 
with the character of the imperial diet as the embodiment of the political whole. If the members of the empire all treated one another reciprocally as sovereign potentates, then the imperial assembly became a kind of multilateral congress. There were two kinds of ceremonial codes and two kinds of political logic. Like an ambigram, it was possible to see the assembly as either one or the other, as either a representative organ of the political whole or as a diplomatic congress of sovereign powers. All the imperial estates, even down to the cities, made the claim that their envoys be granted the international law status of an ambassador to whom royal honors were owed. But this was by no means recognized by all of the others reciprocally. Instead, just about all of them argued among themselves. Crowned heads against uncrowned, uncrowned ones, electors against princes, secular against ecclesiastical princes, old against new ones, princes against counts, counts against delegates of the cities, and everyone together against the diplomats of foreign powers. And precisely these, the principal players of the European stage, the great monarchs, did not even think of treating the imperial envoys like ambassadors. France, for example, sent only third-ranking envoys, or one third-ranking envoy to Regensburg, with the result that for years the members of the Diet did not even deem him worth of being dealt with. Thus the total absence of the high potentates themselves had by no means eased the situation of common dispute. To the contrary, it continued to intensify. The envoys borrowed the symbolic capital of their lords and drew from it interest for their own social self-representation. For them, the embodiment of the dignity of their lords was a matter of highest priority. But on the other hand, the interest of the great princes themselves in the embodiment of their status at the imperial diet continuously decreased, because they had meanwhile developed other more effective stages for majestic splendor at their home court. All of this eventually resulted in, the, in a sort of negative feedback loop, a vicious circle. The less value the princes placed upon the imperial diet, the more humble the origins, the origins of the envoys became. And the lower their origins, the more importance they themselves placed upon the representation of their lord's status. Ultimately, without realizing it, the envoys were almost exclusively occupied with themselves. With a few exceptions, the increasingly subtle ramification of the ceremonial corresponded to the increasing insignificance of the matters being handled. When in 1785 the Viennese envoy Trautmannsdorf took the balance of his many years of activity, he noted succinctly, quote, the topics belonging to the imperial diet consultations are generally of no consequence whatsoever and extremely unimportant to the emperor's highest court. End of quote. Fourth and finally the procedure of deliberation and decision making itself. The hierarchy of seats and votes in the imperial diet was essentially frozen in the condition they had uh, been in the late 16th century. But the occupants of these seats and votes had changed and become much fewer in number. 
territorial accumulations as a result of war, inheritance, marriage, and secularization had led to the order um, of the imperial diet no longer reflecting the actual power structure of the empire. But the traditional imperial order continued to lead a tenacious symbolic existence on the paper of the scholarly handbooks and in the rituals of the voting procedure strictly following the hierarchical order of the seats. The traditional procedure of decision-making constituted only a very small part of the entire event of an imperial diet. Deliberations took place at all for six months a year at most. The remainder of the time was recess for Christmas, Carnival, Easter, Pentecost and Harvest time. And when the envoys gathered in the town hall, it was by no means always for formal consultations. Quote, now it very often happens, wrote a legal scholar, that people assemble 10, 20, 50 or more times without anything be being put forth in a proper proposition or deliberation. End of quote. However, the formal seating order remained a site of the greatest symbolic significance. Here the empire acted ritually in corpora. This was the place in which the traditional order of the empire was enacted symbolically and preserved against all the factual changes. This is why the order of seating and voting had become the subject of endless conflicts, all of which had been ritualized over the course of the centuries into the most cumbersome possible polling schema. For a formal resolution, this old seating and voting schema was still required. So, last not least, what did the Imperial Diet consult about and make resolutions on? As an illustration, I would like to single out one year in particular, namely the momentous year of 1764, after the end of the Seven Years' War, the year in which Joseph II was elected King of the Romans, a time of drawing of uh, political accounts everywhere of reform and rationalist programs. During the entire session from the beginning of January to the end of April 1764, there was only one single assembly of a total of five that was held in the traditional form of an orderly session. Only one single formal resolution was decided, namely, I quote, a patriotic declaration that the estates found themselves convinced of the great utility of the upcoming royal election and expressed the most devoted desire for its imminent and thriving outcome. End of quote. After the Imperial Diet passed, after that, the Imperial Diet passed con congratulations in which it most reverently showed, I quote, the greatest inwardly cherished joy over this universally gratifying event of great profit for the prevention of damaging schisms and disputes. End of quote. Both the minutes of the formal session and the resolution itself were published in print. Only on the surface this was, these were mere compliments. Their real function was the symbolic staging in actu of the order of the empire itself, in which all the members down to the last imperial count had the right to participate. 
After the recess, at the beginning of August, however, a different kind of subject was placed on the agenda. The emperor was determined to carry out the reform of the imperial chamber court, which was urgently necessary due to the court's terrible state of affairs and which had been unsuccessfully in the offing for decades. He requested the imperial diet to assemble the necessary deputation for this reform. But this never happened in this year, never uh, did not happen because first the members departed for recesses from 3rd of August to 22nd of October. And secondly, the ability of the imperial diet to reach resolutions was for the time being completely paralyzed because the two confessional camps in the diet were blocking each other over a conflict about a very complicated voting matter concerning the Prince Bishopric of Osnabrück. As long as there, were, there was no amicable agreement on this matter, formal consultations and re resolutions in the Imperial Assembly were not even possible. Because of this, it was also impossible to assemble a deputation for the urgently needed reform of the Imperial Chamber Court. The date on which work was planned to begin, 1st of January uh, 1765, came and went without anything happening. So, the events of the year 1764 exemplify, as if seen through a microscope, the structural idiosyncrasy of the Imperial Assembly, that which I would like to refer to as institutional hypocr hypocrisy. Actually, the Imperial Diet was not what it was supposed to be, according to the dominant legal and political discourse, an organ of collective decision-making by the emperor and the imperial estates in all matters of political importance, an organ thus from which the large body of our German state would receive the movements in all its members. The decision-making weakness was structurally determined. This is because, on the one hand, the imperial constitution and not least the Peace of Westphalia, as mentioned above, expressly guaranteed every single member of the empire every acquired right. But on the other hand, these rights collided with one another in countless cases. The imperial constitution did make procedures of conflict resolution and legal determination available, but these procedures could not guarantee that the imperial estates would also submit to their, to their findings when they were to their disadvantage. The consequence of this were, on the one hand, the increasing accumulation of undecided conflicts, and on the other, the fastidious symbolic and ritual preservation of all the old claims. The more obvious the decision-making deficit became, the more people spoke of German patriotic sentiments of the fervor of, for the unity and prosperity of the beloved German fatherland, of the holy bond between head and members. This is what I call institutional hypocrisy. And this was due to the indissoluble contradiction between the two fundamental principles, cooperative unity under the, the imperial sovereign on the one hand, and the freedom of the members on the other hand. As a rule, these obligations stood in contradiction to one another, but precisely this could not be uttered. Rather, the fundamental conflict of values generated a structural ambiguity, which virtually compelled all the participants 
to act hypocritically. It was exactly this ambiguity what Hegel had in mind when he formulated this uh, paradox that Germany was a state and a non-state at the same time. Institutional hypocrisy may be a very common political phenomenon even to this day, I think. In the case of the old empire, however, it was the very structure of the constitutional order that was concerned. And in this respect, I think it does make sense to speak of a very special path of the empire among early modern monarchies. Thank you very much.